You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at soundtalentmedia.com. Welcome, welcome to the Smoking Word. Welcome to the Smoking Word. Yo, 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 what's up, everybody? Guess who's back? The Smoking Word podcast is brought to you by, you know who, KatsaTheRock.com. If you don't know, I'm going to tell you again. That's my merch spot. Everything is done in-house. Every, all the designs are done by your boy. And um, we have a lot of stuff in stock right now. We actually still have a couple of designs left for 15 bucks. We're clearing house for a bunch of new stuff that we're about to drop. So CasaTheRock.com, if you want to support the show, if you want to support me, or if you just want to look good. And make sure to follow me on Instagram, HoyerRock357. Everything smoking word, everything mad ball, everything Casa the Rock. That's the spot to go to keep you up to date. Make sure you follow the podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, and YouTube. There's no excuses. We up everywhere, but make sure you subscribe. You know the drill. The shit don't count unless you subscribe, everybody. And today, my special guest. An old, old friend, tracing back to the early days of Madball and New Jersey and the Northeast. My boy, the voice behind, Doggy Dog, John Connor. Let's set this shit off. Welcome to the Smoking Word. There he goes. There he goes. What up, Rock? Yeah. I hear you and I see you. What Hi. up, John? Awesome. Hey, how you been? Good, good. You set up on your side? Yeah, I'm set up, man. I'm comfortable. How are you? Good, good, good. What up, everybody on fucking Johnny's side? What up, smoking word? Yo, what's up, bro? How you been? I'm all right, man. You know, uh, I'm blessed. I'm alive. I got my health. You know, we're all missing something right now. Um, but yeah. I feel like I'm I'm happy, uh, you know, to to have what I have. Grateful. Yeah, no, definitely, man. I'm, I'm glad I got you on. I've been wanting when I relaunched this shit. You were one of the first guys that I had on my list. Anyway, we talked about it for a while, but I was like, you know, we have a lot of history, you know, especially with like if you liked it or not, you got a lot of history with Maribel for being that. I know you, you know what I mean. But um, our first U.S. tour was with you guys in Downset. We'll get into that, but um. So I was like, I got to get John on and, you know, you're, you're, you know, you, you're doing your hustle now too. So, which I was glad, but what I wanted to tell you, so I saw that you were in Ireland. Let's talk about, let's start with that. You What's up with Ireland? Ireland? Yeah, man. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a child of immigrants. My mom and dad are both, uh, you know, naturalized. They came over to America. They eventually became citizens, but uh, mom and dad both were born in Ireland. And I know you were you were getting on me in the DMs about milking cows, but uh, yep, yep, yep. Shout out to Blood Clot and all you vegans out there. <laughs> that's uh, that's you know that's that's my mom's family history. My mom is one of oh. uh, eight, eight kids that survived. Her father died real young, so they they came up on a dairy farm, um, the same the same farmhouse where moms grew up uh, is still there, and two oh. of the sons 
two of the sons are working that land. And, uh, you know, back in the day when I was a kid, mom and dad used to take uh, me and my sisters over every summer. So that was just part of my life, you know, just being uh, on the farm, uh, working the land and being around the animals and everything. And uh, I know if you were following my stories when I was over there, man, it was just like just getting there and getting to that earth and getting to that quiet place really just helped me, you know, get recharged and catch yeah, that. Absolutely. Vibe be grateful too and just just know how much kind of my you know just being around my roots and being around my family um it's you don't have the inundation there as well i mean right now covid's exploding over there so a lot changed in the in the eight weeks or whatever since i've been gone but when i was there they weren't having cases you know it was almost like normal life so that was a nice place for me to recharge spend some time with mom. I was there for five weeks and uh, there a little bit longer than I had planned on being because my mom had some surgery and it's, it's taken her a while to recover, but she's on her way back. And uh, Good, good. That's the main thing. Good. No, and that's dope. And a lot of things about that is dope. One, that um, you were still able to get away at a time with this whole COVID shit was going on because I was even like, yo, are you allowed to get out there? You remember? I wasn't sure. Obviously, I knew... Your fa- you had to have family there, but I didn't know it, it was still open like that for you, you know what I mean, to be able to go during that time. It's not now. My sister was trying to go uh, maybe wow. next month or something if she got the vaccine or mom got the vaccine. Mom said, like, you know, you get fined for being out of your house. You could catch a hundred euro fine just for being out of your house for the wrong thing now. So Ireland's been very serious and their numbers were really good up into a point, but you know, the holidays exploded everything. And, and uh, again, it started spilling <laughs> and then, listen, I love the Irish. I got a big connection with the Irish cause you know, one, New York, you know what I mean? That they, they're sprinkled everywhere and every, okay. and, and I don't care if it was every hood, every, whatever kind of hood you had your Irish sprinkle, you know, that was there from the old, you know, the old school in them. I grew up in, 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 in an Irish bar. Kennedy's it was our neighborhood bar. They were the okay. bar that let us drink when we were 14, 15 years old. As long as Mike, our bartender, straight from freaking uh, Cork or somewhere, and he used to be like, stay at the end of the bar. You don't know nothing. But he would <laughs> give us beers. But we, we all respected, and we grew up with them singing Ireland first and Ireland last. I mean, I grew up in it. So, And then what I was, what I loved about it was Madball, uh, we were lucky in the early days to be able to travel there even not a lot but we got there in the in the early days we got to do dublin and we were supposed to play belfast in the 90s but they were still blowing up cars in the street at the time yeah so it was still wild but the kid a whole bunch of kids came from belfast i never forget this and to the dublin show which was always off the hook and i just saw the the the, the passion they had they came from belfast they were like yo we wish you could come to, to Belfast, but right now they're blowing shit up in the streets, but we had to come see Madball. I'm getting goose pimples now. And I was like, man, you know, and that shit always stuck with me. And we were able to go throughout the years. We played Cork, we played Dublin, you know, we got to get in there a little bit, you know, so. That's dope. I was psyched when you were there. I don't know, yeah. I got that that Irish spring. There's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> a whistle feel when I saw you out there. I love, I love to hear that. And you're right, the Irish have made their way everywhere. I'll never forget my, our first time in Russia. We were, tr- we were transferring in Moscow, going to a festival on, uh, on the, was it Black Sea over there? And uh, 
And I come out of customs and the first thing I see is Katie O'Connor's Irish pub in Moscow. Yeah. I'm like, come on, man. The Irish, they, yeah. they are everywhere right now. Listen, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a quick one, a real quick one. Since this is for the Irish people. And so we're, we're our first time we're going, we're going uh, to Ireland and we're taking the boat. I forgot where the boat was, somewhere in England, which we were taking the boat from the English side, obviously, to the Irish side. So we're, you know, we're pulling into Ireland and then, you know, everybody's in the front watching as we enter in the key and there's this one guy, he's going berserk. He's like, my country, my head, I miss you. And he's going nuts. And we're psyched our first time in, in Ireland. And we're like, yo, and he's like, buddy, you ever been here? We're like, no, first time you're going to love it. Bro. I, I can't, I'm so happy to be back. We're like, how long you been, you know, been gone? He goes, it was the worst two days of my life. <laughs> I never forget that. I was like, yo, I thought this guy was in prison and just was released. But um, he always stuck with me. But, but a question, this is what I wanted to ask you. Hey. I saw, because following your line, so you come from a, a music family. I saw your whole family jamming out together. You know, um, my mom and dad aren't, you know, they, they appreciate music and they love music, but nobody really plays Nobody, yeah. no, my mom and dad weren't, aren't even really like great singers or anything, but yes. being in Ireland and growing up there as a kid, you know, people up until recently, even people still tell the news of the day verbally, you know, that's why pub culture is so big. Like people just love to get together. They love to, they love to chat and they yeah. love to sing and tell stories. So there's always music around you in Ireland, whether you're musical or not. And then, of course, some of the cousins and now their kids are, uh, are are now getting into, you know, they're musical. They're into their Ed Sheeran or Pink or whatever it is. Yeah, Ed Sheeran yeah. is big everywhere. Yeah, no, I didn't see No that. doubt. Yeah. So one of the things, um, you know, one of the things that I got is the ability to, to entertain, to sing. And that's my way to connect with people. So when I can get like three, four generations of blood together and sing a song that was oh, yeah. uh, my cousin's daughter's daughter uh playing the guitar and yeah. then my cousin's husband and and their their child singing and my sister singing with us so that's just a part of it like if you're in somebody's house in ireland you're gonna have a few drinks and yeah, you're gonna I love go around that. telling some jokes or singing some songs or telling stories so yeah. that's just part of the culture i i love that and there's one thing i want you to help me with that I need to know straight from an Irish fucking motherfucker's mouth in your brain. Because there's something that I've been watching and I'm addicted to it. I don't know why. All right. But it's this girl singing this song, an Irish wedding song. Um, the, the something bog song. It's an Irish wedding song. They claim that you sing at four in the morning, five in the morning. So you're looking at me like I'm crazy. So, all right. So that tells me enough. But I love it. And it's if you look online, Irish wedding song. I got to look it up. Yo, it's, first of all, you're going to be addicted, number <laughs> one. Number two, I, I don't know what it is. It's, but you got to look at it. But I, but I think it's something Bog song or something like that. But it is something. amazing. And, they, and it said, I, you know, Irish people singing at whatever, five in the morning. And I was like, yo, that's amazing. Because I know they're swelling and they're bombing. Like, even better. And um, well, anyway, when you get a chance, watch it and be addicted. I got to look it up. I, got, I don't know about it, but I probably heard it because I've been to a rack of Irish weddings in Ireland. So. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> and, dope. And, and I'm growing up Jersey, different from Ireland. No I doubt. know you weren't born in Ireland, 
No. What I know you're Northern Jersey guy, right? Yeah. What part of Jersey? What part of Jersey you came up in and everything? So my folks, uh, my folks when they settled over in New York, they were they were up in the Bronx. So I was oh, born in Bronx. Manhattan. First couple of years of my life, I was in the Bronx, um, you know, just baby style. And then mom and dad moved across the bridge to Fort Lee. Fort Lee. Oh, so you're yeah. from Fort Lee. Yeah. So I was in Fort Lee first, and then they bought the house up in Closter. And that's pretty much where I came up. You know, I, I moved there second grade, something like that, you know, yeah. eight, nine years old. And, you know, that neighborhood where I grew up was so mixed. You know, we had Latinos, Jamaicans, Germans, um, yeah. you know, all, all different race, colors, creeds, religion, you know, that, that kind of helps, uh, helps set the stage for me you know, just being exposed to a lot of different cultures and a lot of different people and being normal with that. My mom and dad also had the mentality since they were immigrants that everybody was equal, you know? Yeah. They, they, they weren't uh, up on some shit, you know, yeah. like, hey, you're better than anybody. They were like, put your, put your, put your nose down, you know, keep your head work up, hard. keep your nose to the grind, work hard. Um, and that helped set the stage for me. So. Yeah, I grew up in North Jersey, um, pretty much, you know, middle class. We're a middle class family, upper middle, upper middle class neighborhood. Yeah. Um, some of the Yankees and Giants lived in, in my town or the next town because it was so close to the Bronx. Um, yeah. Just for the record, everybody out there, it got to be Yankees, Giants, Rangers, Knicks, Nets, Mets, Jets, and whoever else is whatever. They don't even count. But you, you're speaking in my language right now. You know, you know I'm a Rangers guy, man. You I know. know. I hit you up when you made the 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 Casa de Rock uh, man yeah. ball shirts with the Rangers logo. I was like, yo, yep. I, got, I gotta have one, man. Yeah, um, yeah. No, so if I, I go, if, you know, if I'm on ice, if I'm on ice, and you see this this physique on the ice, I gotta rep the, you know, I gotta rep the Rangers. It's just what it is. You know what I mean? No but doubt. um, but yeah. So let me ask you this, because you always, you know, you guys, obviously, I met you later than in, when you were a kid, but, you know, you guys always had that, you know, it was a skater, it was snowboarding mix, it was, you know, um, uh, um, uh, graffiti, it was hip-hop, it was uh, hardcore, whatever. What was first out of all that? What, what was the the timeline with, like, how the evolution of all these the mixes? First thing, you know, be, being into music, like I said, music's always been a part of my life. So I, re I always remember, you know, like every certain songs trigger memories things like that so for me i was all about it climbing building forts you know whatever it was evil can evil to this day i still you know one of I my love evil can evil yep you guys Get, got a track no what's that i, I was it you guys who had a track evil can evil we don't have a song called evil can evil but in the who's the king video i reference it there i know yeah that's yeah. what it is some i know it's around in in, in, in the the dna the no, the no fronts video has got a clip of Evil Knievel flying through the air in the house party. You know, we we basically, you know, our our crew, everybody, Sean and I, we were inspired by Evil. You know, we we got into skateboarding. I'll get to that eventually, but you know, the music thing, uh, it it was Kiss first. You know, ACD, some hard rock caught my ear. Of course, you know, the pop hits or whatever came along. Yeah. I love love my Jackson Five or. Yeah. Whatnot. But I would say, I remember I was delivering newspapers 
as a kid. That was my first job. You know, a Sunday morning, I had my, my radio Walkman. It had like PLJ or whatever the rock station was. And I heard Paranoid, the riff and Ozzy's voice. And I just started riding my bike a little faster. I just got sized up. And that's what caught me. You know, it was like yeah. all of a sudden I was like, okay, I know what, I know what my shit is now. You know, yeah. this, this metal caught me first. Yeah. Yep. And that, and that got me into, you know, we're talking about like middle school, sixth grade, the kids, kids in my class started getting into that thing. You know, we were into the, I remember the clash and combat rock. I was looking it up. Like, when did that record come out? Like, you know, 82 men at yeah. work. MTV was hitting early 80s. So I was just absorbing that music, getting into, yep. you know, my old, I had an older sister, three years older than me. And she was into like her Springsteen was like a big thing for her, but I wanted to have my own music. So of course it had to be a little edgier and whatnot. So I just gravitated towards the rock and metal. And, you know, of course it was like in the early 80s, you had Def Leppard and Maiden. So it was like the classic metal was yeah. pretty much what I gravitated to. And then what, when did it, and then what came first? Like, uh, and then were you ever full blown skater? I know you, it was, I know you guys, some of you guys fucked around with it and your crew. Yeah. And I know you also was big with the snowboarding. For sure. So location made it very, you know, easier for you guys. And it was actually, you remember that time it was like an in thing, you know, if you were snowboarding, right. you know, everybody was trying to get into it back then. And you guys just happened to have, Bear Mountain or whatever you guys will go to. I think it was Bear Mountain, right? <laughs> I remember, I remember. These yeah. So, so like, you know, this was like 19, probably 86. Me and Sean were in high school and Sean moved to my town, I think in 1985, 86. All right. And so real, stop, stop there real quick. So you and Sean were the first out of the doggy dog, you know, collab, you know, collaboration of dudes. You, you linked up with, so By like, the way, uh, shout out to my bro, Shorty Sean out there. But um, all right, so you two are the first to connect in high school. Yeah. Sean right, and right. I, I was in Catholic school and I hated it. You know, I was trying to grow out my hair and I just, you know, I, I was never into school. I, I was an outdoor kid. I couldn't focus. I probably had, you know, some sort of ADD or, you know, whatever it is, I probably had it and didn't know it. You know, I, I tested fine. I had had my intelligence or whatever, but I just couldn't sit still. I wanted to be outside. So I moved to the public school and there was an area of lockers where the kids, everybody was in alphabetical order, but the kids that came to the school got put in an area and I popped my locker open one day and I had a picture of like James Hetfield from Metallica and Ozzy. And then Sean popped his open and he had, I think, uh, Hatfield and Angus Young. Angus, of course, Angus. You know, boom. From then on, we were like, we were brothers. We did everything together. We drank our first beers together, you know, got into skateboarding together. Our friend, Mr. Ed, was a BMX dude and he had a skateboard and he used to let Sean and I take turns on a skateboard and he would be riding his bike. And then Sean got a skateboard. And then slightly after that, I got my first. It was like a used Mike McGill. You know, you're talking about a, like 86 or whatever. And it was yep. just popping off, you know, Thrasher Magazine, um, the yes. videos and all that. And skateboarding, of course, led to snowboarding. But a buddy of mine, Josh Humphreys, he bought a snowboard when he was up in college. And this must have been like, you know, 80, 87 or something like that, 80, 88 maybe. 
and he got a snowboard. It was a, one of the first Burtons, you know, it, it had like a kind of cut out in the tail. It was concave. It was, it was a, a relic right now. It certainly would be like one of those kind of snowboard history uh, joints. Yeah. He had that and then he got a, a new board, a little bit more modern. And he sold me that. And I was like, yo, I'm going to kill this. We went up to some mountain, I forget the name of it, like in Connecticut or, or up, upstate or whatever. Man, I got my ass handed to me. I was <laughs> falling down, but I was hooked. It was like, yeah. it, it was on, you know? And this was in the days where mountains weren't even allowing snowboarding. You know, when, when fast forward a little bit to, to, to 90, 94, when, when the No Fronts video came out, uh, Roadrunner got us on Beavis and Butthead. And Beavis and Butthead, they made fun of us, but they were calling it skiing. Like people yeah. didn't, they didn't even know what to call it back then. It yeah. was that new. And No Fronts to this day was, you know, indisputably the first video to feature snowboarding, the first music video to have snowboarding in it. And it was authentic. It was us, you know, it was me, Sean, yeah. Kevin Riley, our first sax player, and Dougie, uh, who used to rap with us and play sax. You know, we were in it. It was our friends. It wasn't like we hired a bunch of pros that yeah. weren't even snowboarders, you know. The first yeah. U.S. Open in, in Stratton, Vermont, Doggy Dog was uh, was the first live act to play at the U.S. Open in Vermont for Burton. So, you know, wow. we, our history of snowboarding runs deep. And, you know, I'm proud to say it's authentic, too. It wasn't something that was manufactured. Or we were yeah, no, it, it always seemed right. And I knew that it was kind of because by your location, because there was guys in the city that were getting into it. And they were like, Bear Mountain or whatever. And then I know you, that was kind of your guys' area. And I'm like, yeah, why wouldn't you? If that's in your backyard, kind of. Yeah, right. you know, it's like, you know, even more. So I never, I always thought it was like, it just made sense. And you guys were the first guys, at least in the East Coast, you know. Yeah. I don't know, whatever coast that brought that, you know. In our music, it was either, you know, you got hardcore punk, you know, whatever this, you know, skins, or you had, you know, surf punk. The whole, that uh, snowboarding, the snow part wasn't mixed in yet. Not on the East Coast. You guys were kind of that connect, you know. Now I think about it, you know. Like, yeah. It was, a, it was all lifestyle, you know? Yeah. And we didn't have the internet back then. So people relied on magazines and VHS was getting yeah. big into it. You know, that, that was spreading the culture around. And in the skate videos, you know, Thrasher Magazine always had music. Uh, yeah. That's how I found out about, you know, Suicidal and groups like that and XL. So being an East Coast guy, I was mostly getting exposed to East Coast stuff, you know, Metallica, Ride the Lightning, Run DMC, uh, uh, like Rockbox, King of Rock, stuff like that, you know, I, I've said before in different interviews or whatever, but like me me and my my friends, like we were breakdancing to Metallica and headbanging <laughs> to Run DMC, you know, it all made yeah. sense. The cross-cultural thing always made sense to me. And I think it's because of the neighborhood that I grew up in, you know, we had yep. such a mix I had all different types of food. I had Indian food, Spanish, Italian, whatever, Jewish. You know, it was just, uh, it, it, all, it all made sense. Northeast was a, is a special place. You know, the whole Northeast got that. You know, again, we're lucky that um, part of it is um, we, we, we have a lot of uh, coastal line, to, uh, you know, the European influence many, many years ago from the being able to get to, you know, transfer. That's why when you hear like a New York accent, when a Dutch person learns how to speak English good, 
they they sound very very good because they sounds almost like a New York accent because we got that accent from the Dutch that came back in the day and how right. they pronounce certain words. So I, I you know I my son's Dutch and you know my wife rest in peace was Dutch. So I understand how that whole thing works and I hear it you know in the connection. So and we absorb being if you're the Boston and New Jersey and New York or Connecticut, you know D.C. You know all these areas you get that mix of flavors which. I also think makes special kind of humans. You know what I, I mean? Not always the best, but definitely mishmash. You know what I, I mean? I think it's great. I, I love, yeah, I I love, love the mix up. I think the more the more spices, the more the more flavor, you know, you 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 can draw upon the richer, the richer the dish is gonna be, you know? Yeah, yeah, facts. Yeah. So it's you and Sean, you're hanging out. When does the the, the music book, how how does that hit you where you guys are like, yo, let's start a band? And well, Sean, Sean was playing guitar and one of our homies, one, one of our classmates was a drummer and he started, he, he was starting to jam with, with some fellow classmates and they were like, Connor, you know, the words to all these songs, you know, they were doing Judas Priest, breaking the law and, you know, yeah. uh, crazy train and shit like that. They're like, you already know the words you should sing. So I actually... I started singing before Sean ever got in a band. You know what I mean? Like we, Sean, Sean was my homie, but I wasn't playing with him right away. We were in the same grade. Um, Probably like same time, like around 1996. The the lucky thing that, that we had going for us was there was a local club in Bergen County that on Sundays they did uh kind of matinee thing that started at like four in the afternoon or five o'clock. They probably had six bands or something like that. And this is mostly metal cover bands, but they, it was all ages. So they allowed kids in there. Um, there were some adult bands as well mixed in. But the first time I got on stage, I was singing covers at 16 years old, you know, so I was to it early. That's where I met Dave Niebuhr as well, because he Davey. was... And that I saw exactly, you know, me and my my drummer, the guy who recruited me to sing. I remember we were looking at Dave's band and we're like, yo, they're trash. But that bass player's dope. We should try to get him. Because <laughs> yeah, we didn't have a bass player at the time. You know, we had two guitar players, a drummer and a singer, but we couldn't find a bass player in our town. So, yeah. you know, that's that's how I met the Monkey Pup guys. And really, without this club, you know, I would have not able to, to have made these connections and also gain the confidence to be like, yo, I can do this. You know, I remember my, my uh, one of the, the guys in my town was singing for this band called Hades. And I remember them. Yeah, Hades put out a record and we were like, yo, like we, we can do this. You know what I mean? That Like they're doing it. We can yeah. do this too. Mucky Pup got signed. Dan Astazi was still in high school and he was making a record and he was going over to Europe and we're like, we could do this too. You know what I mean? It, it didn't seem out of the realm of possibility to be able to do it because we had an example of people that were already doing it. Yes. And that, that was it. The China Club was the link, you know, that, that got me the experience of like booking shows, doing shows, um, networking with other bands, you know, getting in. Then I got in my second band and we were just like a little bit bigger yeah. and a little bit doper. You know what I mean? And got, yeah. got more attention and that kind of 
got me into the music thing. And all the while I was into the skateboarding thing as well. So, you know, fast forward a, a couple of years here to like 1988, 89, and Dave Niebuhr gets in Mucky Pup. So I was already friends with Dave a little bit. And I was definitely friends with the Mucky Pup guys because there were a couple towns away and they were guys that I saw that were doing it, you know? So I was supporting yeah. them and, uh, and, and being friends with them. And then, you know, they were doing shows that all around the area. They were getting to uh, Sundance out in Long Island. No, know? Mucky Pup was doing their thing. Yeah, for sure. No doubt. No doubt. And, and Chris Milnes, you know, way ahead of the times, you know, he was coming up with these dope little t-shirt spins, you know, ripping off Nike, ripping off Run DMC, you know, whatever it was, Chris was a creative guy. He had that graphics background and he was, you know, a couple years older. He, he, he knew how to play like every instrument and he was a critical, uh, critical component to like, you know, just bringing us all along and giving us that idea that we could do something. Yeah. So, so um, Sean, Sean got into Mucky Pup when, uh, when Dan Astasi left. I forgot why Dan left, but Mucky Pup had asked Sean to, to play guitar. So this was in 1989. It was like Mucky Pup was, was opening for Murphy's Law. They were opening for Primus, Red Hot Chili Peppers, um, Bad Brains. I remember going to see Bad Brains at Sundance. I mean, we got to see, you know, dope shows. For some reason, Sundance really loved Mucky Pup, and they were able to get out there and get on those shows. So I remember Sean was playing guitar with Mucky, and they said they were going to bring him over to Europe. So this is 1989. And Mucky Pup had been over to Europe once or twice before on a van tour with a, uh, a Belgian promoter. And Sean and Dave were in Mucky Pup and they asked me to go as a roadie. And this was like probably winter of 89. And I had already stopped playing in bands by then. I was deep in the skateboarding. I was like, fuck bands, you gotta practice. You know, it's, it's so much, it's so much discipline. I could just get out on my skateboard. I could get with the homies and go somewhere and do it. I could go downtown to the local plaza and do it by myself. There was no rules. You know, you could do it on your own. You could do it with a group. It, it, it just, it was a lot more freedom than being in bands were. So I, I got out of the band thing and I was in, into the skating thing. And then Mucky Pup was like, yo, come with us to Europe. Of course, I couldn't, I couldn't front on the opportunity. So I went over with those guys. We, you know, we went around Europe, mostly Germany, Belgium, Holland, stuff like that. Had an absolute ball. Got got exposed to like the DV8 guys. So like Danny DV8 and uh, you know uh, fucking Phil from uh, Mental Disturbance and uh, Lawrence uh, Ice Cream Lawrence. So uh, Larry, Larry, exactly. Start, started <laughs> hooking up. Started hooking up with the, you know, the Euro crew, MAD, um, you know, kind of getting exposed to those guys. MAD booked the first Doggy Dog tour that we did in 93. But just to backtrack a little bit, you know, 89 and 90, I went over with Mucky Pup. And of course, I couldn't play. I don't play guitar still to this day. No bass, no drums. I was like the worst roadie to bring. But I, I could hang the banner. I could sell shirts. I was loading up the funnels, loading up yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a party guy. So Chris, Chris would put me on stage and we would cover um, Murphy's Law, Cavity Creeps, or, or uh, Crucial Barbecue, 
So I was kind of like, you know, the party starter dude. Sometimes I'd open, I'd open the show. Sometimes we do like a, a, an encore and I'd come out and do a song. So got, got the juices flowing. But uh, yeah. one thing that I can't neglect that kind of set the stage for Doggy Dog was I had heard the Urban Dance Squad album, Mental Floss for the Globe. And that really opened my mind to the possibility of a band doing a lot of different things. You know, I was already into hip hop and funk and reggae and just anything really. Um, And when I heard Urban Dance Squad, I was like, oh shit, they're like, he's rapping, they're singing, there's heavy parts, there's funky parts, there's movie drops and, and keyboards and whatever, you know? And so, when, when Sean and Dave split from Mucky Pup and asked me to start a band with them, I was like, we got to do something different. You know, we're all into hardcore. We're all into metal. We're all, Dave is a heavy soundtrack guy, even to this day. And yeah. you know, Sean loves his blues. A-C-D-C, and, and yep. like, let's, let's go wherever we want to. You know, we're not going to be just one or two things here. We got to be wherever we, wherever our hearts go or wherever our creative muse takes us we got to follow. That's one of the things that I really was adamant about um, as far as doggy dog. Like we got to try and do something new, try and try and do something that's going to satisfy this itch to do everything. Okay. Well, let me ask this. What I like what you kind of already said with, with urban dance squad is, and, and you answered something that some guys I like asking and some guys and bands don't like answering because they take they you know, uh, uh, a lot of dudes and bands, we, we, too much ego. When when I say, uh, when we start a brand, we all know when you start a brand new band, you say, okay, I wanted to be like Metallica meets, you know, uh, um, James Brown meets whatever. That's not biting. That's not even saying you're taking, you know what I mean? We know that because we're musicians. It means yeah. influences and, and swag and flavor from. So I always ask that. And some guys in bands feel like, no. My, my, my ideas came original, organic. Okay, yes, we all know that. My whole point is, what was your, like you just said, so for Doggy Dog, if you had to pick somebody else, Urban Dance Squad, and what else was in the, in the Doggy Dog pot that you were saying like, yeah, okay, this is going to be an ingredient in this gumbo? Well, you know, the band started in like 1990, right? So, of course, we were influenced by what was going on in hardcore. We love hardcore, I think. Even to this day, everybody that's been in Doggy Dog better know some bad brains. And if yeah. you don't, you're about to learn some. You know what I mean? Because yeah. that was a huge, that was a huge band for me, just um, just inspirational. And people ask me all the time, what's your favorite show that you ever went to? And it was my my 18th birthday, July 13, 1987. Bad brains, circle jerks leeway and living color Jesus and, Christ. and that was fire i mean you want to talk about front men it's like hr all of them, Keith Morris, all of them. eddie and, and all Corey, of them cory glover you know what i mean so, and, and no and real quick it's funny because now that you said that bill that bill is doggy dog dna like total yeah me and Chris Mills, I, I'll never forget, he took me in his little Honda CRX, the two of us. We, we went out there and saw that show. And that was just a life changer right there. You know, yeah. my, like I said earlier, one of my biggest influences, Ozzy right there, uh, Black Sabbath, of course, Evil Knievel, and 
when I got into hardcore, HR, HR just had a swag and an energy nobody else had. And, you know, we've, we've had our history over the years, of course, and everything's cool now. But even like Eddie Leeway, you know, my first New York uh, CBGB's matinee, Chris Millen's again, 1986 or something, took, took me to CB's. And I remember seeing Token Entry and Leeway live for the first time. And I love the way that Eddie carried himself. The way he was on the mic, it just, he wasn't screaming into the, into the mic. He didn't have like Tim Chunks, for, yeah. for instance, you know, had a more gruff voice. Eddie was a guy that I could relate to. He was a little swaggy bit. Swaggy guys, style. yeah, swaggy yeah. style, definitely. And, and our voices, uh, you know, people said, people ragged on Doggy Dog in the early days or being leeway ripoffs or whatever, and born to expire, you know a huge record, not only for me and Nastasi and me, and Sean, but for yeah. everybody in that era that came up. I was just listening to Eddie yeah. on, on your podcast uh, before we went on. And, you know, I, 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 lo I love that sound, uh, you know, yeah. promos. but yo, J Jimmy, Jimmy G, James Dresser, you know, one of the biggest influences on me as a front man, just yeah. the way Jimmy could carry a show. And even though the spotlight was always on Jimmy, he always made sure to shine it around the room on his band, on people in the audience, the way he, he handled himself. And, you know, I was at the Beastie Boys uh, first, first tour uh, in, at the Capitol Theater in Passaic, you know, seeing, seeing uh, you know, Mike and, and uh, Ad Rock and MCA and those guys doing their thing in 19, was it 86 or 87, yeah. you know? So just being exposed, so all this different style of music, all these different entertainers as well, helped shape me and also Doggy Dog. You know, I wouldn't say there was definitely no, you know, we're trying to be a cross of this or of that. Of course not. It was literally more, we just don't want to be categorized yeah. as, as any one thing. We were more interested in blowing up the box than fitting different components into the box Later on in Europe, they, they categorized our style of music as crossover. You know, you yeah. hear that term more in Europe, but it's, it's a fair assessment because it's, it's a crossover, a lot of different styles, but it definitely wasn't an intention of just being rock and rap. We brought yeah. saxophone into it because we dug Fishbone. Fishbone was hands down one of my favorite bands and the most energetic bands you could ever find in the late 80s, early 90s. They crushed everybody. Everybody in the band could sing. Everybody was doing something and was, yeah. an, was as important as the front man was. So a lot of different yeah. influences. Yeah, yeah. No, and definitely it's funny. You reminded me of that whole how the leeway doggy dog comparison back in the day, that whole little shit. And it's funny because that was also the era of those type of shit talkers. Because for many, many years, especially in those days, yeah. we were called baby agnostic front. So you, people wouldn't even say Madball. They go, oh, Roger's little brother band. We had that during those early days. Sure. So I know what it was when we're like, no, they're a huge influence on us. But no, we're not AF. Some right. guys were in it and influence, but we're like, we're trying to be our own animal. You know, yeah. we're like, Freddie's not Roger. You know, no, no matter what, you know, who they came out of, they're two different humans. And exactly. early on, they're like, oh, that's baby AF. And we're like, we're not baby nobody. Yeah. You know, like, and then... um. But it was at that time, it seemed, um, you know what it was? It was um, man, thank God there was no internet then. Then all those motherfuckers would be talking mad shit, right? Troll City, right? Troll City. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. The cool, the cool thing is, you know, in the longevity for all of us, thank God, and that people are still alive and around long enough that to see things come first uh, full circle, you know, that the guys yeah. in Monkey Pup uh, got pulled up by people like like Leeway and, and, and yeah. Biohazard and all that. Yeah. And now that, you know, after all the years, it's nice to be able to, you know, be friends with AJ and Pokey and Eddie now and know, oh, yeah. you know, all of that is in the past and everybody's cool and it's all love. And I can understand too, you know, people, people put a lot of time and effort into it. And then you see, you know, bands kind of coming somewhat out of nowhere and getting light and getting that, that attention and get it and getting that, you know, exposure. And you're like, damn, like, I've been here, you know, what about yeah. me? So, you know, I, I mean, I we're, we're all allowed to feel like that, but at the end of the day, that's some kid shit and we got to get over that. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, everybody got to worry about themselves first, you know, how to make themselves into their 2.0, not be your 2.0. I got to be my 2.0. And that's the thing, what, what Matt Bull always did. We always did our own thing. You know how many bands we took out on tour that ended up taking us on tour, right? We got no shame in our games, no ego. We know what we've done. And we get mad respect and love because we always respected everybody. And we always, and I think the people feel it. You know, we do everything from our heart, if you like it or not. And we rep our shit a billion percent. And People know when you're when you're legit. You know what I mean. You know, I, I think people could feel when you you're real about something. You know what I mean. And I do like what, exactly what you said. Like talking about Dan and other old school guys popping back up. I love it because it also shows all these fake old school motherfuckers that love talking about the old school and talk shit on the new school. Yet you haven't seen them in 20 years. And when they were around, they were around for two years. And yet they want to talk about glory days. I'm so tired of that bullshit. I, I, we all show love and respect to the OGs, and we always will. But we were also those new guys that were hated on. You and we were. Yeah. You know, so we also know that. Right. Well, you know, so. It's just a matter of, like, longevity. And if you've, been, if you've been around long enough, you establish yourself. You know, like we were talking about influences. At, as, at a certain point, you know, you may be a combination of your influences, but at a certain point, you find your own voice. And yes. you find your own lane and you're not worried about it. Like I remember in the late 90s, early 2000s, when like Kid Rock and Limp Bizkit started popping up and all this and Linkin Park and all that. And people like, oh, aren't you, aren't you feeling some type of way that these groups like, you know, jumped on your sound? I said, it's not our sound. They're doing their own thing. We're doing their own thing. I'm happy to see people having success if they have more success than us then that's just what they earn and that's what they deserve right now and funny enough full circle again comes around we're playing a festival and you know with Limp Bizkit and those guys Fred or whatever checked us out like these guys are dope next year we're opening doing shows with them and they treat us like family so you know if I would have popped off 15 years ago, whatever, who knows? Maybe that opportunity doesn't come up. But yeah. And I yeah. And I'll say it here too. Shout out to Fred Durst and Limp Biscuit. I don't give a fuck about all you hater motherfuckers out there who talk shit. Because I'll tell you this. 
I wasn't the biggest fan of Homeboy like everybody in our world was when it came out. But the fact is this, a, a good friend of ours uh, was working with him and AF was playing a show in Europe and Limp Bizkit was playing. He goes, yo, AF is playing. And my boy looked at him like, what you know about AF? He goes, yo, like I grew up, you know, not saying he was a hardcore kid, but like AF, Slayer, whatever, let's go check him out. He went, checked him out, blah, blah, blah. And then my boy, Big Chris, shout out to Big Chris and Omerta, gave him a, a, a tape and said, yo, check out, this is Madball, this is Roger's brother, because obviously that's my brother. Fred was like, yo, this is dope. Yo, you think they would be down to play with us? Right? Freddie talked to him. Two weeks later, we're doing fucking arenas with them in Europe. So, and I have guys that we've been on, on labels with for 20 years that got gold albums that every time we're in town want to jump on stage when we're in their town and they want to do the press picture, but never took us once on any stage. There you go. So, it, my, and Fred was just saying, yo, ba ba ba, it was Mad Ball, Corn, Limp Biscuit. That's it. We had, we got mad love from the crew. We weren't jerked on Salman. We had a lights. You know how it is, yo. And after that, I was like, yo, this guy gave New York Hawkeye a chance to be fucking, to rep the right way. No, no one was ever told us how to do it or how it was go. Yeah. So, I remember. I remember, Shout out to those dudes, you know. I remember when you got when you guys got on that, and you had came home from that. You guys were playing the pinch in a basement in DC, and I was like, "Yo, yeah. you just played London, the London O2." I was like, "You you got from you know a stadium to the basement in DC, and you're like, yo, I like this shit better.'" <laughs> yeah, because you know it's your element and whatever. It was dope, and you know. And again, yeah. my point is just a guy. What we weren't bringing selling all the seats for the corn and lip biscuit or you know we weren't they weren't loot they could cut off us cut us off the bill and it wouldn't lose nothing right fred liked it he made he said yo i like it i want it i want you guys to do some shows with us boom done we have guys that are in our same world that when we were the new band and they were the band able to take us out that gave us no love i don't hate and i don't names but you know what we did we decided to do our shit on our own Madball did some of our early tours were full American tours with local openers every night. Not so you we do on a national tour. Who is this band? Nobody knows. Oh, so we're doing a national tour. Nobody knows us. And every show was local bands, battle of the bands kind of deal, and us throwing on the end. Because yes. nobody wanted to take us on tour. But we keep doing it, we grind it, we grind it, you know, we do what we do. You know, when you live it, it's what you are. This is what we are. So like it or not, you know, they're stuck with us. That, but uh, that Lip Biscuit tour was, was the first time that we had supported a band in over 20 years. And those guys showed us love. Uh, Fred's, Fred's brother did lights for us every night. We didn't have a budget. We didn't have money for that. He did yeah. it for free. Um, Fred, Fred brought me on stage every night, you know. Yeah. Uh, Nothing prearranged. He just hand me a, a mic and said, yo, let's, you know, I was standing on the side of the stage drinking a Guinness and, you know, the sound man handed me a mic and next thing you know, I'm up there doing killing in the name of with him. Yeah. And now every, every time we see them, he's like, you know, just, I get that mic and yeah, you didn't, have to, you didn't have to do that, man. You know, so exactly. Yeah. And that's dope. And, you know, again, it also, 
you know, they, they're showing respect to guys like us, even if they weren't, didn't know when we were first right. ignited right. as bands, they recognize the love. Yeah. That, you know, they, they, they don't, they, those guys got nothing to gain from taking you or us out, but they, yeah. they got some straight up love. They like what we're doing. Hey, yep. fuck it. Let's go. Right. And I like that thing. And yeah. let, me, let me ask you this. So early doggy, but this is what I was wondering. Cause so the early night, so it's Dave, you, Sean, and who was the first was, so I know the Moby era of your drum. I didn't know who was before. And you had the, the Spanish or the black kid who used to rap and play sax. Yeah, he wasn't there. I saw you with him in shows at New York and at the Pipeline, but not when when we started touring. I think he left the band or whatever happened. What was? Yeah, so you know, for us, we kind of had rotating drummers. Uh, John from Mucky Pup was was with us doing demos, but he had Mucky Pup. He had work. He had other stuff. He was like, "I'll help you guys," but you know, I can't be in this band. Um, and it took a while to find even like to get us to the Mopey phase so we had different drummers our our sax player was he started out as just a friend you know it was one of those ideas we wrote this song and we're like yo this sounds kind of like burlesque or something let's let's put some sax on it yeah we put sax on it and then it was like oh that kind of that's not sounded kind of cool that's dope and then next thing you know songs like who's the king started getting written and no fronts with the sax and everything so doggy dog like you know, Dan Astazi too, like he, he was in the band, but he had a full-time job. He was already out of Mucky Pup again, I think at that point, but he had his dad's company. He got married. He was getting, or getting married, you know, getting ready to kind of start the career stuff. So we, we kind of, you know, had rotating members and it was always Dave, Sean and I, that was, you know, we were the, the, the fathers of it. We started it. Um, and, and we had different guys like Scott Mueller, once we once we got into the idea that we were gonna have a sax in the band, yeah, we, we had Scott. We we knew we wanted to have a guy who could really play sax. And that's who, he was in when we started touring together, right? Yeah, that's that was that, that with the downset and everything. Yeah. Um, so like '94, like Doug Doug Wilson, he was rapping and playing sax. Doug came over when when All Borough Kings came out. Doug was with us in '94 when we were on the Biohazard tour. And mm -hmm. that tour, we were we were on that tour in the spring of '94, and Dan Nastasi got married, so he couldn't come on the tour. He was planning a wedding and getting married, and Sean asked Paris Mayhew to play guitar. But Paris was always going to just be a live guy. He mm -hmm. he played with us for about a year or so, and we went with Mark De Baker, a Belgian guy. We knew from yep. mental disturbance. The muscles from Brussels. <laughs> he played. He played a mucky pup on bass. So we already knew. You know, we were touring a lot in Europe by then, and we we asked Mark, "Hey, you can play guitar as well. Do you want to join? You know, we want you to be in this band. We want you to contribute. It's not going to be live only. You know, we want you to be a member." I think Dougie ducked out right around that time, kind of in the in the winter of. 94 we were doing our mm -hmm. first headlining tour in europe and doug when we finished that he was like i can't do this anymore i need some more stability in my life so doug left and we were down to just just one sax player two guitars bass drums and and myself so that was yeah, and that that's where we linked up because that's why I, like i started off the episode saying you know the history that you got our first a u.s tour was mad ball 
um, Downset Doggy Dog. That was our first time in a bus in America, our first time touring uh, America, you know, in a package. It was a... Right. Oh, and we had a blast, you know, it was a fucking... You know, I, I remember that tour vividly because, again, being my first U.S. tour and, you know, we got to play CBs. You know, I mean, we played CBs many times, but now CBs is gone and we were able to play that. I remember having the bus roll up in front of CBs and we're like, nigga, like, yo, this is great. <laughs> yo, we had the bus. This is how crazy it is. On that tour, the bus picked us up at Freddie's squat where <laughs> Freddie lived. So we had, the bus was worth more than the squat. And then we took the bus from there to Stigma's house on Mont Street, and then we started the fucking down, the Downset Doggy Dog tour. I think it was in Peabody's, I want to say, was the first show. Oh, I almost remember the... And I remember smoking the biggest split of my life back then, but that's another story. But um, we, <laughs> we were into CBDs. We went to CBDs before CBDs. Yo, I remember that, like pulling up to CBs and having two tour buses outside. And we were like, Crazy. yo, man, this is incredible right now. Just, just the vibes of that tour, because we had already, we shared a bus already a couple of times with Downset by that yeah. point. So we knew those guys very well. We were already acclimated to sharing uh, a crew, sharing backline. Yeah. You know, we came up together. Downset, that was their first time pretty much off the West Coast when they yes. joined the Biohazard tour. And I think it might have been their first time on the East Coast. With a, yes, with it was. Us. So that tour was just unique in a way, too, that there was no headliner. You know, yeah. we rotated our spots depending on whose turn or maybe who was the strongest in that territory. Yep. You know, there was very little egos. Guys, guys, we shared the same crew. We shared the crew, same everything. Band. Yeah. You know, we were a unit, three bands, yeah. you know, young bands and uh, just out there having fun. I remember our drive. Our driver used to call y'all bus the ghetto bus. The ghetto <laughs> bus, yeah. I, I used to remember. I used to Bones was our driver. I would get on the CB and I start talking shit. And I remember <laughs> being like the ghetto bus. Yeah, we were. And and of course, Sean, we we end up hooking up with you guys. We meet the minute we met with, with you guys. Obviously, we all got along. All of us got along yeah. very good. Sean was living with us day two for the rest I of the know. tour. Sean was part of our bus. That's how Sean always did. He couldn't wait to get the fuck off our bus. Whether it was Biohazard or, or Clutch, Ugly Kid Joe, it didn't matter yeah. who. Sean always was gone, but it created more space for us. <laughs> what I loved was waking up and seeing him pass out in the, in the, in the, so, in the living room. So to me, I was like, I need to see that in the morning. That's, that's why I was almost like, yo, Sean, we're leaving. And I was like, no, you're in our bus. Like, that's just a wrap. You know, you're part of this. But no, and I remember I hit up James from fucking downset not too long ago because um at the 4th of July because two things I remember there was fireworks on that tour one day we were in the in a parking lot in the middle of nowhere and I remember James having a cowboy hat lighting skyrockets we're in the middle of nowhere and I remember being like yeah and then I remember where you talking about downset first time on the east coast was we're playing a show somewhere and it's after the show we have the buses parked and I'm looking out the window and it's snowing and I see James and fucking, you know, all those guys, Krantz, all of them, they're fucking running around the snow. We're like, look at these guys. These guys, I'm like, why are they fucking so amped? I don't even want to go out, like, kind of shit. And then we come out, and they're like, yo, we're like, I come outside to smoke or something. And I was like, yo, what's up? And they're like, yo, we've never seen snow before. <laughs> I never forget that. James was like, this is the first time we have snow. 
I was like, oh, shit, California. That might have been D.C. because I remember we played Ibex in D.C. and it snowed yeah. that day. Because yeah. at, loadout, at loadout, we were getting all hit by kids with snowballs. Yeah, those scumbags were throwing snowballs at us. Remember that? I remember across the street, we were like, yo, be careful. It might be into games. It's a real beef. I remember. And I remember Nags Head, North Carolina, where they would give us all the drinks off the mats. And I remember being with Dave. That day, especially, we were doing the, the leftover drinks and the fucking, oh. Dave was drinking was the bar mat. The, mat the, the bar mat, and it was at the Mad Monk. I remember. Stigma, still, call, Stigma still calls him Misery Knees. M misery Knees, yeah, because I remember that. David Misery Knees. Misery Knees. Yeah. Same thing, the muscles from Brussels, that was the Stigma. Stigma is them. But yeah, no, um, good times, man. And fucking, and it was a, a cool time, even for, again, like, um, I, I don't hate on all the new bands. I'm not one of those guys either. But I, I think it was still very, at that time, like, everybody still had their own style. It was still so different from each other. You know, you you guys from Downset, from Downset to us, it was like, everything was so different. But it made sense, you know what I mean? It was dope, yeah. you know, like, yeah, dope times. Everybody had their own lane. And it really felt like probably two... For uh, for us being Roadrunner and also being Howie bands, you know, there yes. was an automatic connection. It was like I could not like you guys. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. You know, and, and 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 put together by guys like Howie behind it, he's like us. You know, that's why he loved our bands. He comes from yeah. that mix. He got it. He understood it. And right. fuck it. And especially with you guys, a, a very another thing that's very special and a very uh, um a very historical moment for mad boys one for you guys and even i got to see it for you guys was dynamo 95 right. like for mad ball it was still our biggest show to date still insane but i got to see your guys show that day which was the i could honestly say the biggest, craziest show I've ever witnessed with my own eyes was the, 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 the doggy dog set at Dynamo 95. That was, yeah. what, what were you thinking that day? Like, you've done cool shit since then. Has anything ever compared? That's what I wanted to ask you. It was different. You know, we were, we were over in Europe kind of warming up for that, you know, and I remember Stefan from Roadrunner uh, Holland was we were in the office beforehand a couple of weeks or three weeks before whatever it was beforehand and he was like yo this dynamo show is gonna be big like this is a show like that could like put you guys on another level like is there something special you could do do you have an idea any any kind of you know gimmick or yeah. <laughs> and i was like you know i was just whatever just on the spot i was like get me a surfboard and maybe I'll, I'll bring a surfboard out on the crowd. And I had seen, I went to, um, Dave Niebuhr's girlfriend, Kim, went to Rhode Island School of Design and they had Club Babyhead up there. I'm sure you guys played it over the of years, right? Love Babyheads. So I, I, while she was in college, Sean and I used to go on skate road trips all the time. And there was a skate park up there. So we went up, we were going to go skating and we were going to go see the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones at Club Babyhead. And one of the opening bands was like, I guess, a surf punk band or surf whatever. And the dude got up. I think it was on. He was either on a surfboard or on his bass case. It was the bass player. 
and he wrote on the crowd on the case. I was like, okay, that's dope. So I kind of put that away in the back of my mind. I told Stefan, yeah, I'll jump, uh, maybe I'll jump on this surfboard. And I'll never forget, we were in Paris the day before. We get to Dynamo, I'm waking up, I'm coming out of the bus. And somebody from Roadrunner's like, yo, you know, we brought you this surfboard. I was like, oh yeah, okay, cool. Like, whatever. And they're like, should I bring it over? I was like, okay, cool. And they brought it over. And I had told them, the only thing I told them was make sure the skeg is off the bottom, you know, cause I didn't want anyone to get hurt. So yeah. somebody spray painted the board with doggy dog and, and drew this shitty crown on it. I was like, oh, that's corny, man. I was like, why did you do that? You know, like yeah. be, being into skateboarding and being into graphics and things yeah. like that. You know, I was like, oh, that's whack. Why did you do that? I, like, I might not even do this now. And they're like, what? Oh no, like whatever. So while the show was going on, we had no idea it was going to pop the way it popped. You know, it was a great day seeing it, seeing y'all, everybody. Life of Agony, Biohazard. I mean, the crew was there. The Roadrunner was deep. Um, except, you know, Max with, with Nail Bomb. Nail I mean, Bomb, just, yeah. yeah. You know, you know the whole day, right? And we're getting sized up. And of course, you know, we know it's going to be big. But like when Who's the King was going on and, you know, 100,000 people start pogoing, like, that shit made my jaw drop. Like we were just like, holy fuck. Like people are getting lit in a way we never expected. And luckily for us, we had planned that we were gonna shoot the video for the No Fronts remix in Paris. So we had the 35 millimeter film on stage with us, you know, that that ended up being part of the video that won the MTV award and everything. But you know, the, the shots panning out and you see people jumping and it just, it just doesn't stop. It's like past the soundboard. It's like, it's a hundred thousand yes. people, you know, pogoing and there's no way you can pre- prepare yourself for that. You know, we already like, you know, biohazard, even though we were almost the same age, they were still our big brothers. You know, they yeah. took us on tour, you know, we didn't expect to get an elevated response over some of the bands that day. I mean, you know, typo negative is not going to make people pogo yeah exactly dogs. i know what you mean but you know we kind of stole that day you know what i mean like yeah no hands down that shit was insane i remember being like you know we had a great show and our show was fucking wild style and i was yeah. like when you guys played it was like people got to understand this also about that festival which was special about it this was still a civilized amount of bands on one stage that's it. Not 20 stages. So there ain't 100,000 people where, oh, there's 20 stages scattered. No, there's one stage. Yeah, and one all these motherfuckers are in front of you. Yep. And if you that look was the thing. If you look you at wall show or our show or the bio show, you could see, I mean, the entire stage is packed out with bands, yes. fans. You know, I can see you in the background. I see Joey yeah. Z, you know, yeah. Billy. You know, Danny Schuler, whatever. What like, a good time, you know, man. We, we all support each other home. I remember CasaTheRock.com, home of that fly DIY. You want to support the show? Go cop some merch right now. We got a lot of new t shirts, shorts, and caps Welcome available. Everything is made in house by your boy on the spot. So show some love, support the movement. CasaTheRock.com is the spot. Yeah. I remember yeah. walking off stage. And Case Wessels, the owner of Roadrunner, hugged me. <laughs> he fucking hugged me. Howie Abrams, you know, he still to this day talks about it with goosebumps. But he's like, yo, 
He's like, Case fucking hugged you. You know what I mean? He's like, yeah, I've yeah. never seen him hug anybody. <laughs> but, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. so fun. And I, I, that was great. And, you know, obviously shit was popping and popping. And um, at, obviously after that, and obviously Europe was where you saw it, you know, for all of us in general, this type of music and the essence of this type of music, you know, obviously we know in Europe is a stronghold for this. You know what I mean? Um, um, right after that, I know Roadrunner was like, okay, we want you back in the studio kind of shit. It's just what they do. And yeah. um, that, then that's where you did the, 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 the Play Games record, right? Right. Yeah. We, and, all right. We so now. started writing. Oh, you started right, but let me ask you this though. So now, you know, you got you got signed. So you got signed, obviously, because you were locally, you were making some noise. And then now you're dropping a second record after, you know, kind of a big jump, you know, for that. You know, you started popping. So now you're about to do the second album. What's the attitude? Now, how Roadrunner is with you guys? Not, not even on some shit talking, but like, okay, obviously a bigger budget. But now there's more attention on you guys. Um, yeah. How, how how much more how much more time you took with the songs a uh, bigger budget and and you guys got ended up working with Dio which is awesome some classic yeah. shit right now but Dio and RZA we had RZA on that yeah RZA yep yep so you know I I just did a podcast last Saturday for Meet Meet you know he's doing all the Roadrunner records uh, yeah. albums from the nineties and you know we talked for three hours about play games alone so. You know, I'll give you the cliff notes, but basically yeah. at that time, you know, we had already, we had already broken through on MTV, but we still had, you know, the, the, the hardcore and the underground with us. You know, we still had that skate culture. We still had yep. that vibe where we could, we, we had a foot in both kind of camps and Roadrunner opened up the purse strings. I mean, basically it was the sky's the limits. What do you guys want? You know, they were ready to drop 25K on a RZA track. Or yeah. if, if I had this crazy idea about Dio singing a hook, you know, they made a phone call and got Dio. Like, yeah. we, we just knew that Alboro Kings, you know, now it's easy to look back 25 plus years later and, and realize it's, you know, a cult classic and so many people loved it for the sound and for the energy. But we thought it sounded like shit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we knew too that whether we liked it or not, we were already on MTV. So we needed a slicker record. We needed some that had a little yeah. bit more polished sound. I don't want to say we were going pop because we certainly weren't, but we yeah, also- you had to go big willy. You had to, yeah, you just had to step it up. We also felt validated that our ideas to go kind of in any direction we wanted was working. You know what I mean? Yeah. Our, our street culture, our skate, our snowboard, our hip hop kind of attitude was translating not only in the underground, but through the larger, you know, yeah. culture, pop culture in the world. So that record was just us flexing a little bit. You know, we tried to write with Anastasia a little bit and capture some of that who's the king or no fronts magic, yeah. but it just wasn't working because yeah. we had you know, we had been in the trenches with our team and we had gone, you know, around the world, through the airports, through the hotels, you know, from the van to the double decker. And now we had to stand on our own with the group, you know, that, that we were with. So Mark D was writing, Sean was writing. When I listened, I listened back to the record, you know, for the first time in a long time to do the podcast. 
And one of the things that I like to hear on it is how much the other guys were involved with singing on it. You know, a lot of voices. We brought in yeah. the guys from Roguish Armament, you know, the homies to rap on a song. So even though we had high names like Dio and RZA, it was still yeah. doggy dog style. We want to bring people into yeah. the party. We want to expand the, the, the party and make people feel good. We want to try different things. I mean, we had a song that had like a fucking thumb piano on, yeah. on the record. You know what I mean? We weren't afraid to go in any direction. And I think that that was liberating to us in 1995 and 96. Yeah. And, and were you there to watch Dio track or he sent in the track? Nah, we were there with Dio. He came. That's dope. Yeah, I think he might have flew in from Cali. We are at Sony Studios in New York. And we brought in Dio. The whole band was there. He was so humble. He was like, you know, a little nervous, honestly, because we had asked him the beginning of the song starts with uh, the, the end of the national anthem and the land of the free. So we're like, you know, Dio, we pitched him this idea and he was like, I don't know if I can sing that. We're like, you fucking deal. Like you can sing yeah, anything, yeah, yeah. bro. But he was so humble. He was so cool. He was like, to tell you the truth, I don't know anything about you guys. He's like, I don't listen to any modern music. He's like, yeah. I just listen to sports radio. He's like, I don't want, I don't want my uh, creativity getting tinged by influences, which I thought was kind of cool that he said that. But you could tell that he didn't listen to anything modern because he was still talking about dra Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Yeah, exactly. He still has his cauldron with, like, yeah. Exactly. But, but so cool. I mean, you couldn't get a nicer guy. And he, you know, we got to chop it up and ask him about Rainbow and Sabbath yeah. and the horns and everything. And you couldn't ask for a nicer guy. And then same thing with RZA, too, even though a completely different cat how was that? You got in the studio with him too? Yeah, RZA was supposed to come like rehearse with us in, in New Milford in Bergen County and he never showed up. So eventually, I think Roadrunner had already cut him a check. We were supposed to do two songs and we were going to do a rock song and then I was going to go to the 36 Chambers and do a more hip-hop you know, style. Not the same song, two different vibes. And finally, it came down. We were making the record. We were running out of time. I think we booked Chung King or something like that. Rizzo flew in. He came in from Vegas the night before. He had a fat lip. He was at a Tyson fight and got into some dust up. But, you know, ah. he shows up. He's got a bottle of wine and the Killer Beast stingers on and shit. And he got into it. Like, he was musical. I think he might even sat behind the drums for a second. And, you know, then he, then he got with Dave and was like, this is the dark, you know, this is the kind of dark vibe I want him to face. And the guitars, you know, they started bringing their elements in. And, you know, we were jamming. He's, he's definitely a musical cat, even if he can't maybe play every instrument. Yeah. He had his fingerprints on it. And he had the hook for Step Right In. And he had the little clap, clap, stomp, stomp. And no matter where you're from, like, you know, he wasn't a passenger. He was definitely yeah. lyrically involved. Yeah. Uh, BPM, everything, you know, he, he was at the helm. He never mixed it or anything like that. You know, we only saw him really that one night, but then the next, the next song, me and Howie went out to Shaolin. We went to the 36 Chambers and RZA gave me a demo tape of like a beat that he wanted me to, you know, fuck with a rap in it. And it was like, it was like a ghost face session. 
he was doing the uh-huh. Iron Man record. So we, right. me and Howie went out there, you know, for five, six hours. Of course, everybody's late. You know, we're sitting in the we're sitting in the green room at a, at the at the go session. You know, burning a few L's and waiting for RZA to show up. But everybody was welcoming. Everybody was cool. Uh, you know, made us feel kind of welcome. RZA showed up. He was like, "I'm sorry, I'm busy. I don't have that much time, but this is the beat." And I want you to, I want you to come back in whatever amount of time it was. And, you know, let's do something to be honest with you. There wasn't really much to this beat that I could really fuck with. There was no hook or anything. It never went anywhere. RZA got half the money up front and did his step right in. And he never got the back end because the net, the second song wasn't done. But in those days, he got a massive check for one song. You know what I mean? And that just proves Roadrunner was down. Like they were, they were determined to make Dog Dog pop. Um, they didn't have yeah. any idea of what they had. Remember, this was like 36 Chambers was still like kind of just an American thing. Like it hadn't really blown up in even in Europe or worldwide. Um, yeah. It was really only when their second album came out, which was that really blew them up. And, uh, you know, I told the story on Meet Me that goes a little deeper, but we had a third single planned from Play Games and it was supposed to be Step Right In with the RZA and then Roadrunner just kind of lost faith in the project. They didn't believe that Wu-Tang was going to be all that. And it turns out, you know, they lost that bet. But, you know, I don't I never look back with regrets. You know, everything is a lesson. Everything is a learning experience. Yang, it got got you to that point to working with fucking RZA and fucking and people like that. And all right. So now you do that. You know, the thing, you know, the the relationship time goes by. You guys, I never heard, and not that you have or that you did like break up, but I kind of, you guys kind of just went on the low for a while. Yeah. And then did you guys ever officially break up or you just decided, oh, let's just, you know, whatever. All right. Because I never heard that either, but for a while there, when you guys started playing again, I started saying, oh shit, they're playing again. Like right. I started feeling it. And then I was like, that, that's what made me notice. I was like, word, they've been out of it for a second. Yeah. Because when you got when you came back, you started hitting it hard. So we, how, how long was a little bit of a, that gap then? Well, you know, with success also comes some, some turmoil. And the Play Games album did well, not didn't sell like All Borough Kings, but it took us around the world. You know, we went to Southeast Asia and uh, and Japan, one of the first Roadrunner bands to go to like Hong, Hong Kong. We went to Israel. I mean, I've been to 52 countries, 54 one countries. One thing I can say for Doggy Dog, too, I remember win a date with John Doggy Dog and some Teen Beat magazine. I remember that shit, too. Right, right. And, and just to circle back a little bit, when Dave and Sean and I, when we started the band, one of the things that we said was we don't want any categories. We're not going to put ourselves into one scene, you know. It's not going to be just metal or hardcore or hip hop. We want to we want to go wherever. We're going to talk to whoever wants to talk to us. And I remember yeah. the guys in the band, you know, laughing at me for doing the winter dream dream date with John Connor. But that yeah. shit really happened, you know. I was I at the time after we won the the MTV award. There was a fake story about me and Patsy Kensit, the actress. Uh, having an affair in Ireland yep. uh, in, in the sun in the UK you know like it, we, I was in a tabloid magazine like shit shit had blown yeah. up and 
you know, we had, we had isms, we had Rocky. So we still had some presence, you know, in the pop world, but also, you know, when you go that pop, you lose some underground. There's, yeah. there's no way around that. So some of the people in the hardcore community or maybe the skateboard community felt like we weren't their band anymore. That shit happens. And the thing with Roadrunner too was our success um, divided some of the audiences, you know, people, yeah. people at the label wanted to claim success for Doggy Dog, UK, Germany, Dutch, you know, those, those, yeah. those fragments, you know, they didn't want to see UK or Germany or somebody get all the credit. So they were fighting about who made Doggy Dog. And then we had the United States, our home country, you know, we're trying to make it, we're trying to get some ground in the States. We've done touring with you guys. We went out with Clutch. We went out with Biohazard. And we didn't see the same success in the U.S. that we were seeing around the world. So we thought that it was the label's fault, you know, and the U.S. label's fault. So we were kind of at war with them. We had shitty management our entire career. We don't even have a manager now because it ain't worth it to us anymore. But we never had a proper manager, you know. It always came down to me uh, talking with, you know, one of the top guys at the label, you know, about uh, a budget or whatever. I'm like, what the fuck am I doing this for? Like, I got a manager, you know, yeah. you got to let the label, why am I talking to the boss of the label, the owner of the label about a, a, a step right in video? This don't make any sense. Yeah. So 1998, 1999, we were trying to make our new record. Um, we knew the stakes were high. You know, we had we were somewhere in the pop world, somewhere in the underground, you know, didn't know what really what to do, but we were still following our instincts. And we uh, broke up with the label in US. So uh, the Amped record was not coming out in on Roadrunner America. We, our manager, we fired our manager making that record because he was stealing money from our budget. So, you know, a lot of turmoil. Then the record comes out in 99, there's no US release. Comes out, uh, we hire a German guy to manage us because Germany's our biggest territory. And he's like, guys, I gotta get you out of this Roadrunner deal. We'll never make money on Roadrunner. And he's like, I think I can get you on Def Jam. So we're like, dude, Def Jam, massive hip hop record, uh, a label, world, worldwide distribution. Let, let's go to the major, let's try it out. Turns out he couldn't get us on Def Jam. So, so, so we fire the manager, we sign a new deal. We basically break up with our label and then we, we fire this manager, but we got to wait years to get out of it. So we went from 1998 to 2001 before we could get out of this deal. And we're still getting booked. We're still getting some festivals in Europe. Um, we went to Japan um, with, uh, on a big festival there with like Bad Brains and De La Soul. H2O was on that. Um, uh, Blink-182, MC Hammer <laughs> was on that shit. Yeah. So, you know, we're doing spot dates, um, but we're not touring, you know? We're doing nothing in the States. We're doing a little bit in Europe. And then 9-11 hits and touring stops. You know, we were getting ready to go to, to Germany to do uh, this MTV party in 2001, 9-11 hits, all shows are canceled. And 
it took us a while to get back on our feet. We, we literally had to go back to the underground. You know what I mean? Yeah. We, we had to, we got different booking agents, you know, then we find out our booking agents stealing from us. We're like, fuck man. You know, it's just like the rock and roll story. You're getting exploited. You're trying to make yeah. it work. Um, I started working in 2001. I got a job because there's nothing popping. I'm blowing through my savings. I'm in DC. So I start working at an ice rink. I get a, I get a job being a rink guard outside just because I want to learn how to drive a Zamboni. But I get a job and that spirals into a 20 year, you know, having a full time job. I got my benefits and things like that. So, you know, the music industry is tearing the heart and soul out of you. And it took us a long time to reintegrate ourselves. And honestly, Hoya, we were doing it just for the fun of it. Literally. We couldn't really make money, but we were having a good time. We were making a little money. We're paying our bills, but we took the sacks out of the band because we couldn't afford it. We got one guitar because we can't afford it. You know, we're showing up. People are like, who's the king? who's the king ain't fucking shit without a saxophone. What are you guys doing? We're like, we can't afford it. It's either you see the band like this or you don't. We're yeah. doing this just for fun. And through those years, what we did was we, we went underground. We got a new booking agency. We started making music again just for the love. You know, we put the business out of it. Of course, there's a little business because you got to pay for pain, plane tickets yeah. and tour buses or vans or back lines, you know, crew, whatever that shit costs money. But it eventually became more for the love of music and for the fun. And we relearned how to have fun and take the bullshit out of it. And that in turn created more life. And I think people started to see that in our performances, whenever we did pop up, it was just for fun. You know, we played every little shithole in Germany, every, you know, Austria, whatever, Switzerland, but people were like, hey, this band, maybe they're not pop stars. Maybe these guys aren't doing it. You know, maybe they're not the sellouts. You know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Get older and they start coming back. You know yourself. You start coming back to the albums that you came up with, you know? Oh, yeah. So, so people from 94, 95, 96 are now growing up. They got a little bit more money and maybe they need a night out of the house. So they come see Doggy Dog in Nowheresville, Germany, I'm like, oh, these guys are all right. So we start building it up little by little. And I think people connected to the fact that, you know, our hearts were in the right place, that it was just fun. And we started to tick it up and build it up again to a place where we were starting to get festivals calling again and things like that. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Since you guys started, you know, we got to run into you guys a couple of times. And we could even feel, oh, these guys are hitting it harder, like more serious or more consistent. And and and, and that's how it felt. Like it felt like you, you have a, you know, the crowd is starting up again. You know, you guys got, you know, you guys, it, not even I want to say a buzzing, but it, so, it sounds like, oh, yo, you guys got your shit popping again. Like, right. you know, the, the, the nucleus is strong again. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. you were able, you, you've seen it consistently when I've seen, like if you're doing a festival and then doing some club dates, you've seen a, a more consistent draw and you know how that is for bands that go like this throughout the years you know that's what you keep an eye out for so anytime you have something going up it's kind of like oh shit good yeah i mean like catching up uh, upswing of things and fucking so i'm glad for that but like 
obviously this whole COVID shit shut everything down. And I hate going into this whole COVID shit, so forget that. But obviously, we're hoping in the, in the near future, shit's starting up again. What could people, look, what are people going to be looking out for when it comes to John Connor, Doggy Dog? What's what? What's next? What's on the agenda? Well, we I saw the Doggy Dog in 2017, just to kind of further what I was just talking yeah. about. We, we had a 25th anniversary for the band. And when we were coming up to it, we're like, you know what? We're, we're 25 fucking years old. Like people have stuck with us through the ups and downs and ins and outs. And we decided that it would be cool to mark that with a new song. And what started with the idea to, to do a new song turned into this EP. And we had uh, Roger Hammerly, who's been in and, in and out of our kind of fold for many years. Uh, we decided, hey, Raj, you're playing with us on a kind of hired gun capacity. You know, you bring this great energy and this professionalism to it. Let's make this step. Let's create some music. We're going to make you a full-time dude and, and let's go at it. So we made an EP completely on our own, you know, for basically, and, and put it online, just gave it away, sold it for five euros, four songs for five euros or whatever it shows, and just started this buzz. And eventually, uh, a year later, uh, the label Metalville came to us and said, hey, you know, we'd like to put it out. If you can put a few more songs to it or whatever, let's figure something out. We're like, really? You want to put something out that's already been out for a year? Cool. Yeah. Let's do that. And that helped snowball into now 2018, 2019. We started writing again because we said, hey, that was fun. People are connecting to this music. They're connecting to this energy. Let's see if we could start putting a record together. And now that we have a partner to put it out, that's what we'll do. So Doggy Dog's been a part-time band for a long time. We've basically done spring and summer uh, yeah. clubs and festivals, and then taking the winter to hibernate or work or do whatever else guys want to do. And then, so we've been writing, we've been recording a little bit, 20 uh, 2020 spring, we were supposed to get in the studio and finish this album. We've been recording in Switzerland. That couldn't happen because of COVID. And, you know, the bands, our Saxon guitar player in Europe, Dave's in Jersey, me and Brandon are in the DC area. You know, it's tough to keep a band together, period. I know you guys are spread out as well. So, you yeah. know, uh, thank God we have technology, things like Zoom. Um, yeah. And, and the apps and things to share files. So I, I did some recording in October, some more vocals. We probably have just another crop of songs, maybe another five songs that we're still writing with, that we have some demos, loose demos that, but we're hoping to finish that over the course of the next month. And just to be realistic, I don't think this thing will come out until 2022, but it's my goal to see it through, you know? Yeah. Nothing's, no. nothing's promised. You know, we take it day to day uh, yep. in life and in the band. And for a long time now, I stopped trying to pretend that that I'm controlling any of this shit. You know, we're yeah. grateful for the fans. We're, we're along for the ride uh, and we're happy to be a part of it. But nobody's really in control. We're just putting our energy towards the right things, our intentions yeah. the right way. And that's to put new music out. So over the over the years, what we basically have been doing is arranging and demoing these songs live. Like we'll pop a, pop a song in, a, a new song, uh, just to test it out on the fans. Yeah. 
and just to test it out for ourselves and see how it feels. And it's energetic too. You know, I might not even have verse lyrics and here we are doing a song and I'm just making shit up, you know? Yeah, yeah. When you're playing songs that's 25 years old, it injects a new energy into the live show when you have that kind of like, oh shit, like, you know, I don't even know these parts, but, but yeah, I'm gonna, yeah, yeah. Well, we're, we're looking urgency, at urgency, the sense of urgency in the oh, fucking, yeah. It injects life. So yeah. that's kind of where we're at. We're, we're working on that. Of course, we got a ton of festivals and shows. We got a few um, support show, uh, kind of tours coming up this, this November. I can't talk about yet because it's not our shit, but people yeah. are going to freak out. It's some bands from the 90s uh, that oh. people all know. The Doggy Dog, I think, will we'll go over great lists. So hopefully that stuff occurs. As far as what I've been doing uh, on, our, on our 30th anniversary last April, I started doing a Zoom chat with the guys in the band. And that blossomed into like a weekly, not a podcast, but a weekly thing just to stay in touch with the fans. And I mm -hmm. did that for four months, uh, bringing in different friends from bands, talking about different Dynamo. We did a Dynamo episode, you know, just staying connected with people. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an adapter. You know, I have to, like all humans, I got to try and figure it out. Okay, if I can't get yeah. on stage, if I can't press the flesh with people, I'm going to figure out how to use these tools to connect with people. You know, I miss being on stage. I miss being able to chop it up with other bands, chop it up with the fans and things like that. So over time, I did the, the Zoom thing and then started taking it more to, to Instagram and Facebook. You know, over the years, I just started playing ukulele for fun, trying to learn just some things. That. Yep. I'm a music guy. So I never, I was always intimidated by guitar. I could never figure it out. I picked up a ukulele cause it looked like a toy and I thought it would be something funny. I always liked the bass a little bit better cause four strings, I could get my hands around yeah. it. Not that I could really play, but it was a me little, yeah, it was a little less intimidating for me. So I got the uke and I started just learning songs. You know, I learned more songs, learned more chords and I just found it a way to connect with people. People like to hear songs, people maybe a little bit of doggy dog, but it was more fun just to sing songs that people like, maybe some Irish songs or some pop shit or flipping some punk or some hardcore songs, uh, reggae, whatever it is. It's just a way for me to connect with people. And I've been doing that. So in January, like I haven't worked in a year. It's gonna be a year in March, no regular yeah. job, no shows. I'm like, fuck man. like. I love spending time with people, but I got to find a way to get some income out of this. So yes. I'm looking around and I'm seeing people on Patron, on, on OnlyFans and stuff. I'm like, fuck it. Let me try an OnlyFans. Let me, let me invest in myself. Let me take a step and see who's going to take a step with me. See who's, see who's yeah. willing, willing to pay for this energy. And I, I started an OnlyFans like five, five weeks ago, made it free. Um, I'm up there, I'm, I'm providing content for people, letting them set their own price because it, like you said, it's COVID, you know, people yeah. aren't working. Some people yeah. got it. Some people don't. I'm not trying to like, oh, if you want to hear me chop it up with Hoya, give me 10 bucks. No, I'm saying. Yeah, no, no, I feel you, but leave me. Yeah, the same thing. I'm on the same boat, same boat, same you know. Same you can support, you know, your presence is already a huge support. If you got you know, for the price of a beer, you could help me out. So 
I wanted to help myself by giving me a revenue stream while I'm trying to figure it out. And by no yeah. means is it paying the bills, but in one month, I'm already seeing like OnlyFans is like, yo, you're in the top 30% of creators. I'm like, I don't know what that says about OnlyFans. But, yeah. you know. No, but yeah, no, no, definitely. It's, you know, you people like out. us, we got to stay, we got to stay busy and yeah. doing this. I, I have been using this phrase that I said, you know, we're feeding the scene. And what I mean, not personally, like, oh, we got what is we're all investing these bits of time and, and, and podcasts and live streams and interviews and doing interviews and, and watching interviews and, and subscribing, which all you motherfuckers got to do is subscribe out there. But that keeps our scene alive. It keeps the, 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 the heart beating while, you know, while the body is in a coma at the moment. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. So, you know, people got to understand that. So I like people doing that. And I'm glad, I was glad to see what you were doing that, you know, um, not so much working the angles, but um, using uh, using um, 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 the tools that we have to keep, you know, uh, you're involved in the shit. You could just easily say, yo, I'll come back when this is all over and get my check. You know what I mean? And, and throw a Hail Mary and hopefully people still think I'm cool. But you have and want a connection more with the people. You don't want to be known as that because we have our hearts invested in this. We don't want, you know, this is a piece of us. It represents yeah. us. So we take pride in it. And that's why I'm I'm glad when I see guys like I see, like we talked about Dan earlier, an old school guy, he's back in the mix, starting fresh, new bang, coming at it in the trenches. Like, hey, this is what you got to do. We got to grind. We got to, if it means going backwards, starting over, if we love it and you love what you do, that's what you do. So yeah. I was glad to see that you grinding and doing all that. And I want to make sure. So anybody out there, before we get out, everybody out there, they want to get at you or they want to get at your Zooms or whatever. What are the, what are the addresses and all the whatnots? At Doggy Dog Official is our Facebook and Instagram. Um, I, the best place to get at me or to support me is at my Instagram, that's probably the main account. It's at JC Doggy Dog, so that's easy. I got my link tree there, so I got a little YouTube page that uh, I'm slacking on a little bit, but I'm, I'm trying to build that just for fun. Like you said, I'm using the tools that are around me, um, and I'm always a big believer that if your intention is good and you're putting out good energy, that maybe some of that can come back to you. But if you don't I put out energy, you know, you've got nothing coming back to you. You know what I mean? Like I, I've been, I'm always trying to grow. I'm always trying to be a better version of myself as a singer, as an entertainer, as a human being. So I'm trying to take the tools. And one of the things too is I've noticed that, you know, if you, if you have a positive outlook and if you have positive energy, people want, want that and need that in their life. So I think since I have it, I don't want to keep it on a shelf. I want to share yeah. that with people. I want to reach out. And since I've been doing that, it kind of started when I was in Ireland. And since I've been doing that, people have really responded to that and thanked me for it and shared their story or, or been part of the journey with me. So I'm, I'm kind of on that trip. One of, one of the uh, content creators that, that, I, uh, that I really like is this cat, Gary V. And Gary V is a Jersey guy. He's a hustler. He started, uh, you know, pre kind of Twitter and pre uh, social media, but he was able to build it. And he really talks about that being your authentic self. 
You know what I mean? I could come yeah. on here and I could try and, you know, talk about every hardcore band or whatever, but that's not my authentic self. I'm somebody yeah. that loves hardcore, but I have influences from all over the place. So yeah. when, you, when you put your real self out there, I think you have an ability to get a real reaction. So that's just what I'm trying to do. If people catch on to it, you know, hit me up at, uh, at JC Doggy Dog. The link tree is there on Instagram. And it's always good to see you, my friend, whether it's at the pinch, whether it's in you know a festival, whatever it is, man. And one thing I want to say is that you guys throughout the years uh, have really inspired me on your hustle and your grind. Yourself Thank and you, friend have been working really hard, consistently putting out records, consistently putting out quality uh, music, you, quality energy and energetic shows. Every time I see you guys, it's nothing but love. And I'm really happy to see you thriving and shining and being successful, my man. So keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, bro. You know what's up? We love this shit. We live this shit. And I know same thing with you, man. I'm glad I finally got you on, John. Hopefully, the next time I see you, we'll be backstage somewhere. And you know what's up? I'm actually going to get, I got another idea in a future podcast I'm gonna, I got to, I'm going to talk to you about in the future. So we're going to have you back on later, and we're going to have some fun. I'm here anytime, and if I start doing anything with guests again, I'm definitely getting you on. And, you know, anytime, anywhere. Talking about smoking next time. I thought this was a smoking word, but. Yeah, you know what? I, I brought it up real quick about that that one thing but i said okay let's you know let's just on the next one we're gonna have a, a real smoke session but yo one love my brother we'll talk soon yo everybody the smoking word we out peace and love man peace